So we're reading from Jonah, reading chapter 3, um, the entire of chapter 3, verses 1 through to 10. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that in his, is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thanks, Francis. Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we ask uh, that you would do for us this morning what we can't do for ourselves, and that you would give us understanding of your word, that you'd bring us to repentance and help us put our faith in the Lord Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, well, congratulations, friends. Uh, you have just been accepted into the newly formed St. John's on Gettys Mission Agency. Uh, you're headed for uh, missionary service in an undisclosed location. I, I can't tell you where it is because the location is that sensitive. Uh, but needless to say, the country that you are heading to is not a friendly place for followers of the Lord Jesus. It's the, the kind of place where you have to wipe out every trace of yourself from the internet before you head off so government officials don't find out that you are a missionary. Now you've sorted your passport, you've packed your bags, uh, put all your belongings into storage and kissed your family goodbye. Uh, potentially this may be the last time that you ever see them. And now you're on the plane en route to your mission field. And sitting on the plane, you've, you've got time to think and, and to start to plan. And my question for you is this. What is your missionary strategy when you hit the ground? How are you going to reach these people who are so hostile to Christianity with the wonderful news about the Lord Jesus? What's your plan? Whatever it is, whatever plan you come up with, my guess 
is that it probably doesn't look like Jonah's strategy here in chapter 3, does it? We've got an unpromising audience. Uh, The Ninevites are people known for their wickedness and their violence. We've got an unpromising prophet. Jonah is so opposed to God's message that the first time he was told to go to Nineveh, he ran in exactly the opposite direction, didn't he? And we have an unpromising message. It's an abrupt, bare-bones message with exactly one point. Judgment is coming. I doubt there's been many beach missions with that as their main theme. And yet despite this unpromising strategy, Jonah's mission is remarkably and surprisingly successful. And if you're someone who's hesitant or reluctant to talk about Jesus, then a passage like this is an incredible encouragement because it shows us that God loves to show mercy. And he'll use even disobedient prophets like Jonah or reluctant evangelists like you and me to save even the people that we think are beyond saving. This is a chapter that's full of surprises. We're going to work through them one by one. So please keep your eye on that passage. Keep your Bible open in front of you. And the first surprise that we see is Jonah's message. In verse 1, we're hit with a sense of deja vu. Uh, God, as it were, taps the reset button on Jonah's mission. And his word comes to Jonah with the same command that it did in chapter 1. 3 verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now we don't get told how soon after Jonah's nautical adventure God speaks to him again. Could be that Jonah's still sitting on the beach, kind of seaweed in his hair and uh, dripping with stomach juices. Or perhaps he's headed home to Gath Hefer in Israel and thought he'd escaped from uh, this missionary journey that he didn't want to go on. But it must have seemed like Groundhog Day for Jonah. God was going to keep coming after him until he got it right. And in this verse, it's clear that Jonah gets a fresh start and a second chance to obey the Lord. He's given another go because God is the God of second chances. Which is a wonderful thing to know, isn't it? Even though Jonah has failed and disobeyed, God graciously gives him another chance. And even if in the past we haven't loved others enough to tell them about Jesus, God always stands ready to give us another chance. He's unfailingly gracious to us. This time, Jonah obeys. See, after his experience with the fish, he knows that there's nowhere he can go where he can escape God's presence. Nowhere he can hide where he can escape God's demands on him. God is going to have him preaching in Nineveh one way or another, and so Jonah figures this time it's probably just easiest to go with it. And he's told in verse 2 to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, And call out against it the message that I tell you. God says to Jonah, preach exactly what I tell you to preach. Jonah has no space to change the message, to make it more appetising or more appealing to the Ninevites. Not that it seems like he'd want to. He's given no permission to cut it short. 
His message needs to be exactly what God tells him to preach. And just like Jonah, we have no right to change God's message either. As tempting as it might be, we have no leeway to tweak it so that it's more palatable to people. We've got no room to censor or leave out or twist bits of the Bible. Those bits of the Bible that are a bit awkward or not politically correct in our culture. See, if we do, then it's not the gospel that we proclaim anymore, is it? If our message is centred around us, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. If it's centred around us and not what God has done through his son, if it sounds more like a five-step plan to a comfortable and easy life, rather than a call to repent and trust in Jesus and fight sin through the power of the Holy Spirit, then it's not the gospel anymore. It's a bastardised Christian version of the self-help advice that you can get anywhere in our secular culture. And if it's not God's word, it is not powerful to save. If that's the sort of gospel that we offer, then it's no wonder that people couldn't be bothered listening to our message. If they can stay home and hear the same things in a TED talk on YouTube and get to sleep in on Sunday morning, why would they want to come to church with us? Why would they want to put their trust in the God that we follow? Because a self-help gospel isn't compelling. It's not a message that makes people sit up and take notice. It doesn't demand a response from people. The true gospel demands a response. And the message that God gives to Jonah is definitely a message that makes Nineveh sit up and take notice. It's a direct message. It's just five words in Hebrew. And Jonah preaches it just as he's been told. And the message is clear. Judgment is coming. Verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And I think as much as we've been kind of giving it to Jonah so far in this series, at this point you have to give him a little bit of credit for his bravery, don't you? He is a foreigner walking into the capital of the most violent, godless, depraved nation on earth and telling them that his God is going to overthrow them. Can you imagine strolling into Mosul, modern-day Nineveh, at the height of ISIS's power, right into the town square in front of the central mosque, and calling out that the Christian God is going to overthrow ISIS in 40 days? You can pretty reasonably expect that you won't see at the end of that day. It's not the missionary strategy that you came up with on the plane, is it? But without any twisting or censoring, Jonah faithfully calls out God's words of judgment against Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And even though we're not in a situation like Jonah, we're not in ISIS-controlled Mosul, I reckon we still feel scared about talking about God's judgment. It's not politically correct to talk about judgment, isn't it? 
You know, the worst response we might get in Mosul is to be killed, but the worst response here, well, it's to be called the, the worst thing that you could be called in our culture, an intolerant bigot. It's to, to be cancelled. And so we've convinced ourselves that talking about sin and punishment is more likely to turn people off than turn people back. But telling people that Jesus has come to save them is only compelling if they know what they need saving from. And so even at the risk of offending or upsetting people, we need to tell people the danger that they're in. A genuine warning to people who are in danger isn't intolerant. It's an act of love. To not warn people is unloving. See, no one will accuse a parent of being unloving to their kids if they yell at them as they're about to step out onto a busy highway. It's not a hateful judgment on them for playing where they shouldn't. It is a loving concern for their safety. And how much greater danger are our friends in when they are cut off from God? It might be unpopular and uncomfortable to speak about hell, but no one spoke about it more or was more qualified to speak about it than Jesus. He repeatedly spoke about the place where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And more than that, Jesus died so he could save people from it. So if you feel awkward about talking to people about judgment, perhaps consider what it is to suffer under God's wrath forever and ever. To suffer a day and night from one year to the next, from one age to another, a thousand ages to thousands more in wailing and groaning and the gnashing of teeth. Bodies full of torture, souls full of anguish without any possibility of relief or escape. Without any possibility of hiding, without any possibility of diverting your mind from the suffering. Think about how dreadful your despair would be in such torment, knowing with full assurance that you will never, ever be delivered from it. To have absolutely no hope. It's uncomfortable to hear that sort of truth, isn't it? But it's helpful to hear. We need to understand it and we need to persuade others to understand it as well. Uh, let me be clear and, and say that I'm not suggesting we need to preach only a turn and burn style gospel. Now this passage doesn't mean that we should all head to Queen's Park afterwards and stand up on the tables and, and shout about hell. Now what I mean is that the judgment of God has an essential place in our preaching alongside the love and the mercy and the grace of God to us in Jesus. It's a part of our preaching that we must not leave out. Uh, the apostles themselves didn't leave it out. Read through the book of Acts. At the heart of the apostles' preaching, from Peter to Stephen to Paul, was the message that God has raised Jesus from the dead and made him king and judge. 
the one who is going to come and judge the world and therefore we need to repent. It must be an essential part of our gospel preaching. Now often it will take a good amount of trust from our friends and from our neighbours before they're willing to hear about God's judgement from us. And we must never preach God's judgement from a position of moral superiority or condemnation. That's not our job. We must only ever speak of God's judgement through tears. With compassion. As Paul himself said he did on many occasions. The lesson from Jonah is not that we should lead with judgment or that judgment is the only part of the message, but that judgment is coming and we need to warn people. Never forget, friends, our whole city is drowning in the sea of God's wrath and God has put us here to warn them about the danger that they're in. We're in the lifeboats with life preservers to throw them. There are thousands of ways of doing that. The only thing that we can't do is to do nothing. Jonah started by going into Nineveh and preaching about God's judgment. And the gospel requires that we figure out ways of doing it too because not doing it is not loving Now, given everything that uh, we've seen about Nineveh and about Assyria, the nation that they were part of, I wonder what sort of response you would expect for Jonah's message. Now, we know of many stories of missionaries who have taken the gospel to an unreached people and a people who have never heard about the Lord Jesus before and have been killed by those very people that they were trying to share Jesus with. And maybe Jonah expects a similar response from the Ninevites. But what he gets is very surprising, isn't it? Nineveh's response is so surprising that actually many modern-day secular scholars will take it as evidence that this book is just made up. How could people respond like that? But verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah's message makes a splash, doesn't it? Against all odds, the people hear Jonah's message, they believe him, and they turn from their sin in repentance. It is a comprehensive response. The whole city, from the least to the greatest, they all repent in sackcloth and ashes. Man, woman, and child. And Jonah may have been surprised, but we shouldn't be. God's word always has great power, doesn't it? Even to the worst of sinners, because as we saw in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. Which is a great encouragement for us as evangelists. If God's word has that effect in a wicked city, when it's preached by a rebellious prophet with a five-word message of judgment, then it can work in a city like ours with prayerful, enthusiastic, faithful evangelists like you.
God brought Nineveh to repentant faith. And we can tell that that's the response that God is looking for because of what he does in verse 10. He relents from what he said he was going to do. At the end of 40 days, Nineveh wasn't destroyed. And if we want God's mercy on us, and if we want God's mercy on our friends, then that's the response that we need to. We need to respond in repentant faith. And the Ninevites, they themselves give us a great example of what that looks like. See the four things that they do in their repentant faith. The first is in verse 5. They believe God's word. They don't take Jonah's words as just his wishful thinking, Jonah wanting Nineveh to be destroyed. They take it as God's word. It's the, the cognitive aspect of repentant faith. This is what happens when we sit down with an open Bible and God opens the spiritual eyes of sceptical people to see his truth. Second, they humble themselves in verse 5 and 6. They declare a fast and put on sackcloth, uh, both things that are signs of grief and humility and repentance. Uh, even the king, we see, takes off his royal robes and he puts on sackcloth and he sits down in ashes. It's a dress code that shows their genuine regret for the way that they had been living. Their attitude is changed as a part of their repentant faith. See, God doesn't want just superficial, you know, I'll try harder next time religiosity. The humility that comes from repentant faith admits some ugly truths about ourselves. That we have failed. We've sinned. We are filthy and guilty and we deserve punishment. And so the Ninevites humble themselves. Thirdly, they turn from their sin. The king issues a decree that formalises what is already going on in the city and then he adds to it in verse 8. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Repentant faith results in changed behaviour. A genuine commitment to think and act differently by the grace of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Turning away from the sin... That has brought judgment on us. And finally they pleaded for God's mercy. Verse 8 and verse 9. Let them call out mightily to God. And verse 9. Who knows God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, these people knew that God was under no obligation to show them compassion. Their prayers were no guarantee. God was not obligated to forgive them. And so they weren't arrogant enough to presume. They admitted they were reliant on God's mercy. And yet as Christians, we have a certainty that the Ninevites could only dream of, don't we? We know that God promises mercy to whoever calls on the name of Jesus. We have God's wonderful promise that anyone who repents will be forgiven. Jonah had promised that Nineveh would be overthrown, and it was in a sense, wasn't it? But not in a way that anyone was expecting. The whole city was turned upside down 
in repentant faith. And God responds in a surprising way. See his response there in verse 10, where he mercifully relents from his word of judgment. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God's response, just like Nineveh's, is surprising. Now, perhaps you're surprised by the fact that God would threaten condemnation and judgment in the first place. Now, when we talk to non-Christian people here in the West, uh, often they think that Christians are the ones who are on about judgment and hell and all of those things. But Jesus, Jesus himself, he was, he was cool with anything. He was just about loving people, however they, you know, however they came to him. But God's judgment wouldn't be surprising to Jonah or to Israel. And Nineveh's barbarity makes it easy to see that God's judgment is actually a good thing. And anyone who has been badly sinned against and longs for justice can sympathise with them. It is a good thing that God will judge sin and wickedness and violence and evil. The real surprise in this story is not that God would judge, but that he would relent from his judgment. That he doesn't do what he said he would do. See, God had sent Jonah with a prophecy of judgment that was entirely appropriate for people like the Ninevites. I reckon all the other nations around them would be cheering Jonah on. They all lived under the threat of the Assyrian Empire. If Nineveh is destroyed, they would breathe a sigh of relief. And we should expect that a holy God who can't even look on sin would be ready to, be, to punish Nineveh. And yet if you've been reading Jonah carefully like we have, then it shouldn't be a surprise at all that God is quick to relent from destroying them. Remember in chapter 1 we've seen that God is concerned with Nineveh's wickedness and wants Jonah to go and preach his gospel. And even while Jonah is running away, God uses his testimony to save a crew of pagan sailors. In chapter 2, we've seen God showing grace to his rebellious, disobedient prophet. And Jonah's song finishes with the realisation that salvation belongs to the Lord. By chapter 3, we shouldn't be surprised that God loves to show mercy. And so when he sees the repentance of the Ninevites, he does what Jonah was afraid he would do, and he withdrew his threat of punishment. God is wonderfully merciful. And yet perhaps for you, that introduces a different problem. So if you've been reading your Bible and paying attention, then maybe it feels like you've hit a bit of a speed bump when you hear that God relented when the Ninevites prayed and turned. Hang on a second, you might think. Did God just change his mind? And if God changed his mind here, what's to say that he's not going to change it back? 
or that God won't change it about his other great promises in Scripture, the promise to forgive us when we trust in Jesus. What's to say if God can change his mind that he won't change his mind about us? But the Bible is truly reassuring here. The Bible very clearly shows us that God is immutable. That's your word for the day, immutable. See if you can work it into a sentence later. God is immutable. God's immutability means he doesn't change because he's perfect. He can't change. He's always reliable in his character, in his will, and in his promises. You see, if God did change, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Either God was imperfect and he's changed to something better... Or he's changed from perfection to be something less than perfection. And either way, he wouldn't be God, would he? But God is perfect. And so God never changes. And because God never changes, because God is immutable, that means we really can trust him. We can trust all his promises especially the promise of the gospel. When God says that if we repent and we trust in Jesus, then he'll forgive us, God's immutability means we have a rock-solid guarantee that he will. That he won't take the offer back at a later stage or add some extra conditions to our salvation. He is the rock that we can build our lives on with 100% certainty. But does that mean, if God never changes his mind, it's already made up, then there's no point praying for unbelievers? Or there's no point for unbelievers to pray for mercy? Well, not at all. When we see God relent from his disaster that he has promised here, we see him genuinely and responsively interacting with humanity. God gives us, as his creatures, genuine moral agency in our response to him. And he's keeping his promise to relent exactly like he says he will. Now, if you've got your Bibles open in front of you, turn over to the book of Jeremiah. Now, go back a few pages, Jeremiah chapter 18. And we'll read verse uh, 7 and 8. Jeremiah 18, verse 7 and 8. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'll pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That's exactly what God does in Nineveh, doesn't it? God is being completely faithful to his unchanging character as the merciful God. He's been completely faithful to his promises. And so he holds back his judgment. He shows mercy to 120,000 people who live in Nineveh and are facing his wrath. It would have been just and right for God to completely smite Nineveh without even giving them the warning. But God shows his mercy by giving them a chance to repent. 
That judgment wasn't held back forever, though. Despite turning back at Jonah's preaching, it seems Nineveh's change of heart was short-lived. Within just a generation, they had gone back to their idolatrous and their violent ways, and God's prophets would continue to proclaim their destruction. God's mercy doesn't give Nineveh a free pass. His delay in judgment doesn't mean their sin goes unpunished. Later generations of Assyrians would find that out very clearly. But if God wasn't patient in pouring out his judgment, then none of us would be here still. Thankfully for these Ninevites and for us, there's another way. God's justice will come. His immutability guarantees it. He's always against sin and that will never, ever change. But in God's great mercy and compassion, he's given us a window. The story of Nineveh's repentance and God's merciful response is an encouragement to us to throw ourselves on God's mercy. And he offers that mercy to us because his justice has been fully satisfied by Jesus' work on the cross. Mercy and justice meet at the cross of Jesus. That eternal punishment, that hell that our sin deserves is transferred to Jesus and mercy is held out for anyone who responds in repentant faith. And so if you are not yet a Christian, you've got a window to repent. The most violent nation on the planet at that time repented immediately. They didn't wait till the 40 days were up. They admitted their sin And they turned away from it, begging God for mercy because of the preaching of a disobedient prophet. And now one even greater than Jonah has come and Jesus has preached about God's mercy and has taken God's judgment on himself. And he says the men of Nineveh will rise up and testify against anyone who rejects his message. So make the most of that window that you've been given. Don't wait. And if you've already heeded the warning, if you've escaped God's judgment by putting your trust in Jesus, don't forget that this whole city is drowning under God's wrath. Stop faffing about and throw people the life preserver. It might be awkward to talk about it, It might lose you some friends, but people are dying and we have been given the words of eternal life. How much would you have to hate people not to share that message? But friends, how much rejoicing will there be when they hear it and they turn to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith? Let's pray that they would. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we are often reluctant evangelists like Jonah. Father, please forgive us. 
Help us to see clearly the terrible state that our world is in, sitting under your judgment and facing eternity under your just wrath. Uh, Thank you, Father, that you've provided salvation for us in the Lord Jesus, who took the judgment that we deserved on himself and gave us mercy and life. Father, we know that because you have raised him and seated him at your right hand as the Lord over everything, he's coming back to judge. And so, Father, help us, please, to warn people to flee from your wrath by running to you for mercy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.